All right. Welcome to Inglorious Artists number 19. I am Peter Holland and I am going to change accents until you get utterly confused apparently. And today I am talking to Henrik Hensiger who is a director uh, but works as a first assistant director and has been working on tons of enormous movie and TV show projects since the late 90s. And we're going to be talking about the experience on working on some of them and what it entails doing what he's doing and talk about his own projects and so on. Uh, Unfortunately, some of the more juicier stories were told off microphone, but, you know, we have to be discreet so we don't step in some deep doo-doo. I hope you understand. Anyway, this is my conversation with Henrik Hensiger. Oh, welcome, Henry. Thank you. So, uh, we've known each other for like four years or something like that. Yeah. I, I came to uh, do an audition for one of your short film projects. Yes, you did. Uh, I didn't get it, but that's just because I wasn't suitable enough. <laughs> you got to remember that as an actor. You, you're just not right for this. No. It's not that you were bad, necessarily. No, no. no could be. <laughs> no, uh, the thing is that we, we really worked that particular aud- audition. Mm. Um, I really thought through the character. I went through a lot of options. And as I told you the other day, I think I only mm. brought brought in three actors to actually audition for that part. Yeah. And, and, and already you, and you, you, you were all you were all great. And, and in the end, it was just small differences that made the other guy get that, yeah, yeah. that particular part. I saw the result and he was yeah. brilliant. Yeah, he's good. In that, so, yeah. Really, really good. And uh, that film turned out fine, didn't it? It did, um, in spite of so many problems you couldn't even imagine. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it turned out almost better than we hoped for, um, considering when we got through the shoot and all the problems the shoot brought with it. Um, we never thought we would actually be able... Maybe we were even thinking we might not be able to show this one. Oh, okay. Um, because, yeah, we there were plenty of challenges. But we, we got it together and we, we got it out there and it uh, travelled the festival circuit for about a um, year and a half. It went mm. to 20 festivals and mm. won eight awards. Eight awards, 20 festivals. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, yeah. Happy about that. Yeah, Very happy. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. and um, we should start off by like uh, talking about what you are and what you've done. And uh, of course, you are a director in uh, your own right, but mostly you're a film worker. And what you've done the most is being a first AD, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, correctly. And, uh, that's a fascinating job, isn't it? It can be. <laughs> yeah. For for us as actors, we get to see you a whole lot of time, you know, because you're the ones we deal with almost most. Yeah, the true. link between us and the director most, a lot of the time. Yeah. So, uh, but how, how did you wind up to be a first AD? That is a long story. When I started um, getting my first cop and feel of the film business, um, I, I actually um, got got accepted to um, to the Spanish Film School to study production to become a producer and production manager. Mm. The thing is that. I sort of always knew that that wasn't quite for me. Okay. So, and I always wanted to direct. So the decision was, was but 
okay, well, I'm still going to do it because it'll open some doors for me, mm, you know. Mm. And while I was studying at the Spanish film school, I sort of discovered the the role of the AD, the mm. first AD, and I said, that is a great way to get into directing and a, the best possible possible way to oh, learn. Of course, because you yeah. are close to the director yeah, and you can watch and learn. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, for some reason, people liked how I did it, and I learned from some really, really amazing great masters of ADing mm. um whom I will never ever be as good as them but but um and yeah and from there on I've been doing it for 15 years now mm. crazy mm. that's a long time it is a long time yeah. <laughs> no idea how that happened all right <laughs> uh, why the school in Spain though why did you end up there specifically by chance almost I had mm. lived in Spain already for a couple of years and I applied for all the possible film schools in Europe where I could actually speak the language. I didn't want to go oh. to the States back then. I wanted to stay in Europe. Um and they were that was the first school to to accept my accept me in in one of their careers. But so, is yeah. it an English language school or do you know Spanish? No, it's a Spanish language uh, school. You know yeah. Spanish. Yeah. And in fact I was the first ever student at the Sp- the Spanish film school who who didn't have Spanish as the first language. Oh shit. Yeah. Quite cool. Privileged. <laughs> it is cool. And Which also, means you must be very good at Spanish. I am, yeah. 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 <laughs> How come you, uh, you're so good at Spanish? Uh, interest. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interest. And, and uh, I studied at school uh, during high school. And mm. then I moved to Spain to learn more better Spanish. And I stayed for a while and mm. and started getting to know people, starting to, you know, doing the lingo in the streets. Mm. And, and yeah, that, yeah. that's the best way to learn, really. I know exactly what you mean. I, Getting I, drunk, smoking <laughs> things. Things, <laughs> yes. Things. And being a bit of a parrot as well. Because mm. for me, it's a lot it of, you know, listening, picking up the tunes, mm. picking up the melody and the intonations. And yeah, have a sense for language, of course. Which, again, connects pretty well to directing. Because I, mm. one of my advantages when I direct is that I, I am very good at picking up nuances and, 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 and melodies and intonations extremely mm. good at that so mm. i hear things many others don't oh yeah yeah. So i guess it's some sort of advantage how do you direct that if you hear something and uh, some detail like yeah that you notice that i want it slightly different like than that just a particular detail because you know usually it's not really good to just no. pinpoint one mechanical little yeah. thing see there's not there's not a a single method to do that you have to find the method for that particular actor mm. i would say that every actor um has a different way of of uh, of approaching their their work so i have to have a different way to approach my work in relationship to 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 in relation to every single actor yeah it's it's actually different yeah. um but no i don't believe in telling them i want you to say it like this you need no. i'd rather dig into the emotion i said i get the feeling that you're expressing this emotion i would prefer if you could find mm. uh th- this other direction or, yeah and just hope that it will come out yeah, work it out thinking. and try it out and and many times also i provoke mm. you know mm. uh, provoking reactions mm. and, and but it's different for every actor really so, yeah yeah 
how quickly do you find that out? Is it like the first day, first scene, and you do one take, and you try something, and then you notice that that didn't stick, and then take two, and you try something else, and that didn't? Is it like is it like yeah. four takes in, or is it like the one week in? <laughs> that depends as well. Yeah, I guess. I mean, most actors we we work with are so brilliant. It's very very easy. It's not really that hard to find. Mm. You've talked about it beforehand. Uh, on most occasions, you've already work, worked through all that in preparing, talking mm. about the part, analyzing the text together, maybe rehearsing. Mm. And but sometimes you don't get to need actors. No, I mean, so and, and but you know you just get a feel of it. I guess it comes with some sort of intuition. Yeah. There's okay. no way to learn or teach a method. I don't think so, at least. I think it's discovering the person and discovering the actor. Mm. Sometimes you do it in two minutes and sometimes it might take a bit longer. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there are actual don'ts? Probably, yeah. 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 No, of course there are don'ts. I mean, telling an actor how to say something is a don't. For I, me. I, I agree in like 95% um, yeah. of the cases. Because yeah. then there's like those extra 5% of desperation when you just mm. say that with a louder volume yeah <laughs> and angrier on that uh, syllable yeah. okay and then you try it and it might work you yeah. know, if you tried everything else well actually like in 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 my short i had a scene with with an actor who um is there to help the the protagonist but when by helping her uh he is well actually he's helping her child But by helping her child, he knows that he's basically uh, hurting her a lot. So she has to sacrifice herself for mm. a child and he's helping her find a way to do that. Um, and he he couldn't find the, the feeling of, um, he couldn't find the expression of how to have that duality of of being a kind okay. person. I'm coming here to help you, but at the same time, this is going to hurt you a lot. No, that's tricky. That's tricky. Yeah. And so basically, and we tried it and we tried it and we tried it. And, and after, I don't know, 10, 11 takes or something like that, mm -hmm. I basically had to raise my voice and say, dude, you're killing her. You have to feel that you are killing her when you say this. Mm. And then he got it. And I was like, ah. Oh. Mm. And that was the method with that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that's uh, so, helpful. Yeah. Uh, No, but but yeah. I mean that's just every situation and every actor has uh, has a method to mm. on how to communicate about about what the message is and what what emotions to to uh, try to transmit to the audience. Yeah, I guess. What do you feel uh, are the challenges uh, as a first AD? As a first AD, oh, there are so many. Because <laughs> one one thing I'm really impressed by when I've just been sitting around. Uh, observing first ADs in action is the boundless energy. Uh, they got to have more energy than the actual director sometimes. And they got to keep that energy through the 12, 13, 14 hour days. And uh, I've noticed that uh, it seems like a lot of first ADs come from the military <laughs> and they have that kind of. Uh, some do. Um, some do actually come from the military. I think there are fewer now, though. Um, right. Back in the days, there were more. Giving that much energy all the time obviously drains you a lot. Mm. I mean, there, there isn't a first AD in the world that isn't extremely tired of after an intense day of shooting. Uh -huh. um, but you, 
I find my moments during the day when I, you know, I take a breather. Mm. You're lighting for 10 minutes and you actually have prepared everything you need to prepare for the next day. There's nothing you urgently need to talk about for the next week or the next month. Um, you know, you find your time to have a couple of minutes to just breathe mm. and, and, and plan the next shot, the next scene and in your head and go through it all. But um, you also you also gain some energy by giving energy. Um, oh, yeah. If, if I explain myself, um, it's, 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 there is a certain joy in, in having, uh, having the ability and possibility to give people that energy mm. and to give from yourself yeah, and, yeah. and notice that, hey, they're actually, this is actually coming through. Yeah. They're all working as bloody fast as they can. They're all running mm. because I've transmitted the correct amount of energy yeah and then they have more energy and then they give that back to you absolutely but it is tricky basically you have to make people believe they're in a hurry even when they're not (laughs) Mm. um (laughs) because they will be because they will be and it is being a bitch but at the end of the day they're going to be in a hurry if they're not you know yeah yeah. in the beginning yeah uh and maybe some people who are listening to this uh aren't totally clear on what the distinction is between all these kind of jobs Mm. and whatever so what are the prime responsibilities of a of an assistant director first one first ad when you're on set shooting the first ad runs the set uh i would almost say the first ad directs the crew yeah. While the director directs the actors. Mm. Um, it is a constant informing people of this is what we're doing next and this is what we're doing now. Let's make sure we get this done in five minutes, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So you run the set, you, you um, instruct people on what we need to do in every moment during the day, most of the time thinking ahead, most of the time preparing ahead. Mm. Um, you are responsible for the shooting hours, the time you spend on every shot and every scene. In the end, it falls back on your responsibility. Hmm. So you plan the day, you schedule the shoot day, and then you make sure it happens as close to the way you schedule it as possible. But there can be more, more than one person that kind of does this job, and one can be more uh, dealing with the schedule, and uh, one can be uh, more dealing with the director. Generally not. Because I've, I've seen m- multiple people do it, and yeah. I know one of them, one of them is the first AD. But then, then this woman apparently deals with the schedule because she runs around with that. So yeah. yeah, that that person would generally be the second assistant director who would be assisting the first as assistant director. Yeah, there. yeah. When the first assistant director is is by the camera mm. shooting with the director and the DOP and the actors and the extras and everyone else, mm. um, the second assistant director is is working with the schedule looking ahead yeah yeah. and normally i mean the second ad would do that as an assistant to the first ad so so it's a communication with the first ad and the second assistant uh, directors can also deal more with uh, extras uh, background uh, they can now we're entering an issue about sweden uh um a second assistant director uh, out in the world, outside of the Swedish borders, mm. um, would generally not work, work with extras. You can do so on commercials or, or on minor shoots. Uh, okay. But, I think um, I've seen it happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas in Sweden, that, we don't use the kind of second AD that 
everyone else does. We have mm. our own sort of second AD, which is someone who costs the extras and then helps yeah. the, the AD and the director to direct the background on mm. set. That would not be a second AD outside of the Swedish borders. That, no, no. That, that would be more close to a third AD, in fact. Mm-hmm. But that's a terminology oh, which yeah, is yeah. kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. So for me, a second AD is someone who works with uh, very close to the first AD, uh, planning ahead of time, mm. working ahead of time, never mm. being on set, but always working with the future, the day after, doing the call sheet, uh, the week after, doing schedule changes as instructed by the, the first AD, etc., etc. Yeah. So it's a crew that needs to function, and the second AD... Is is administrating the first AD's thoughts on the future. Mm, yeah, mm. this is helpful uh, helpful to me too because uh, I mean I know a lot of this, but I don't know every detail, mm-hmm. and I I think I should know every detail so I can at least you know immediately understand what everybody's doing as soon as I know what who they are mm. in, in any situation. But if you come from um, Film school. I went to film school as an actor, but but still. So I was around the whole process of learning the whole uh, business of acting uh, and the business of filmmaking at the same time, almost. And the crews are so much smaller. They're so they're skeleton crews. It's easy to know what the first AD is doing because that's that guy and that guy is dealing with the props and you know, mm. and uh, that's the sound guy. But if you come to a a big set feature movie is a feature film or a big TV show, whatever. Uh, nobody's going to sit you down and introduce you to everybody. Nope. Uh, you just show up and you, you meet the director. Hi. Okay. Let's go. If you're not, you know, sometimes uh, I had opportunity to meet the director beforehand and talk about the part and blah, blah, what we've talked about before. And it's kind of a luxury when you do that. Uh, but you still find yourself in front of the camera looking at the the crew behind the, behind the camera and then like 50 to 100 people behind and you don't know who anybody is and what they're doing. And five people can come up and tell you things. And like, yeah. then who are you now? Why why did you tell me that I was wrapped when that guy told me that I had to stand over there? And, yeah. and this guy showed me my mark. <laughs> who is who and what are you doing? What is Whoa. your job entailing? You know, some of them are just runners. Yeah. Some That's... of them are, you know, set coordinators. Uh, and the distinction between a set coordinator and a second AD and a third, you know, it's kind of, it's yeah. getting mushy. It is. Especially since I've worked in, Sweden and yeah. uh, outside as well. So the funny thing is, it never gets that uh, confusing what, what, when you work outside of Sweden. If you go to UK, um, mm. UK and US, obviously, but if you go to France, Italy, Spain, Hungary, Lithuania, yeah. Germany, Czech Republic, in my case, Czech Republic, yeah. Prague, definitely, Morocco, um, Australia, New Zealand. Wherever you go, you will but you will find a basic structure which everyone in the end ha- has learned from the US and the UK. Oh yeah, um, right, right. Um, but that hasn't really arrived to Sweden. So in Sweden, it does get confusing because every single film invents their own way of 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 uh, distrib- distributing the the responsibilities at work. So. Hmm. It's almost like inventing the wheel every time in Sweden, Why? which you don't have to do for budgetary reasons. I would say we, you try to keep skeleton crews. Mm. Um, so production 
and the production manager or line producer very rarely has enough money, sadly, to uh, employ a full ladies crew, mm. then the... Um, the uh, the responsibility of a second the responsibilities of a second AD or a third AD will have to fall on someone else. Many times it's the coordinator. Sometimes you have a runner on set that does what the third AD should do. Yeah. Never experienced enough, so they, the poor people are <laughs> going to suffer doing it. But um, and and since it never really works to a hundred percent, the next time we try and do it a little bit differently, yeah, yeah. and that doesn't quite work either. So the next time we try something new, and then yeah. Yeah, it's probably if you look at big budget Hollywood stuff, you you can see everybody's got two assistants. Absolutely, and this guy's a prop master, and he's got his four assistants doing whatever needs to be done. And, yeah, oh. and we we can never ever um, try to match those crews in Sweden. We don't have no, the no. budget. I think nowhere in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. we're nowhere near those crews. Mm. But Denmark still has a proper. AD's structure mm, yeah, yeah. most of the time with a first AD, a second AD, a third AD. Mm. And the people who cost the extras is in fact never the same person that directs them on set. Mm. Uh, two different uh, capacities, two different talents, so to speak. Casting yeah. someone is one one know-how and and setting up a scene with background is, mm. is another, it's, it's a different different uh job yeah yeah yeah. so yeah so have you found yourself to be uh doing it a little bit more than you should uh when you especially if you work inside of the borders of sweden always okay yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and you just have to you have to roll with it you have to roll and it's fine it's fun i mean since we we work with the crews we do everyone has to step out of their own responsibility or step out of their own their own uh, tasks mm-hmm. all the time. And it's the only way to make it work. Because Unless not, you violate union rules, I guess. Which we never do. Which, we, yeah. We, well, we do all the time. But we try not to. <laughs> <We> try not <laughs> to. Yeah, and I was going to say... That was the biggest lie I've ever said. I think. <laughs> we never... We, we, we try not to break union rules, right. but uh, you always end up doing it sometimes. Yeah. Go but, over but time it, and everything. Go yeah. over time, but... but in, when you when you permit yourself to break a union rule, it's it's with on very small issues like, mm. hey guys, can we do two more takes on this shot? We'll break for lunch five minutes later, but we'll get the scene done, and then after lunch we can start with something completely different. Then you can sort of squeeze, yeah, yeah squeeze yeah. those and break, yeah by necessity again by necessity, Be- yeah. yeah, and then film. Film shoots are always alive. It's it's never yeah. it's never the same. Even if it is is the same, it's never the same. No. It's alive. It changes all the time. Mm. So you have to adapt to new situations every minute of the day. Mm. But and again, then, it's stricter in the states when it comes to uh, yes. union rules and stuff yes, like that. Absolutely. I heard a story uh, through a friend of mine about a guy who uh, worked on a uh, on an American film set as like a like a runner or something, not high on the totem pole in any which case. And he saw a uh, a light was about to fall over and would possibly hit someone and anyway, just mess shit up. Uh, so he grabbed it and he got told off and I, I'm not sure he might have even lost his job or something for the, about, uh, over this. Oh. And, uh, 
Because it was against union rules for him to touch that light. You do not touch the light if that's not your job. So and that's kind of weird. No. Well, I'd say that's an advantage we have in Sweden. Okay. We're not that hard on those things. <laughs> no. Poor guy. I hope he yeah. I hope he got a new job soon. Yeah, well. In my yeah. opinion, he did the right thing. That, that's something. I hope he got a new job. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, sure, there are a lot of people who work in film, but it seems like you can always bounce back a bit. It seems always be, there always seems to be work around if you're a film worker. I was talking to uh, the previous uh, guest Benjamin Zadig about that as well. That if you check IMDb, you can just see how many people you have in common with anybody you type in because of the film workers. I can type in, you know, Chris Hemsworth and I'm going to find a hundred connections because of film workers are all over the world and just, okay, I'm going to go to this thing. And then next month I got that gig. And then, you know, so if you mess up on in something, it feels like you're not burnt in the business. Not, not if you make a mistake on one shoot. No, no. I mean, if you keep doing it all the time, obviously you'll, uh, yeah. a rumor it, will start. <laughs> no, yeah, and you'll be, builds. I mean, you'll be creating your own disaster in a way, uh, but, yeah. but no, we we do forgive <laughs> touch f- yourself maybe but have you ha- had any like bad experiences like that were you absolutely <laughs> okay. oh i fucked up <laughs> right, right. <laughs> on many occasions <laughs> of course i did yeah particularly when i started uh, as a runner back in the days oh right, 100 right. years ago yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when you you are pos- it's possible to blame you for for stuff as well yeah well and and you make mistakes i mean mm. yeah i i can tell you what well, i mean a horrible mistake once uh on my very first film job um i was a runner for the production office mm. and the production coordinator uh this is a big shoot it's a really big shoot in the north of spain american mm. german spanish co-production it had 200 million you no could it have been 200 million euros that's a big I can't remember film. 100 million i think no i'd say 100 million euros budget it was a tv tv show uh but it was huge um and 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 that was my first job and the production coordinator at the office sticks a contract in in my hands and say hey you need to you know, drive down to set which was a couple of kilometers away mm. so you need to drive to set and and make sure that this stunt guy signs the contract oh. sure she didn't say it was urgent so i i took the contract i drove down down to set mm. i arrive at set and there's the production manager on set saying oh henrik nice to see you and you we we just broke for lunch do you want some food Mm. So, yeah, sure, fine. And I had I grabbed some food for 10 minutes. I mm. grabbed my coffee and then I went to look for the stuntman. Mm. The thing is that the first thing they did after lunch was with that stunt stuntman doing a jump from 30 meters up. Oh, when he has to sign before he does and that. And he shit. had to sign before he jumped, which yeah. he didn't because I sat down and, and had a bite. Oh, no. That was a terrible mistake. Mm. Oh, apparently, I mean... I didn't know what I was doing. No one had told me. I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they were going to shoot that jump at that very moment. I had no clue. No. And if somebody so, else tells you, hey, we're breaking for lunch, yeah. then okay, I guess it's lunch. You but know? it was a big mistake. It uh, was uh, a major mistake. Um, and But hell did I did I learn from that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah. But nothing happened. The stunt nothing man, happened. The person was the, okay. The, and, it was a beautiful jump. Yeah. Yeah. Because if and the stunt person well. would have gotten injured, it would have been a disaster for the production. It would have been uh, a big issue. 
And yeah. if he hadn't signed the contract, even if a deal had been made and, and you had a moral agreement, would have been, uh, it might, uh, who knows? I don't know the legal no. implications, no, no, but, no, no, but um, it would be bad. For sure, it would have been worse. Yeah. But they forgave that and I could keep working on mm. that humongous production, which actually had some very interesting cast. Okay. Yeah. We, uh, we worked with, uh, we had, Anthony Quinn and Charlton Heston on the show. Wow. Yeah. And we had uh, Anne Archer and Robert Wagner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you remember them, big stars in the 80s. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Wagner, I remember. Robert Wagner did a TV show. Uh, I think there was some sort of some sort of crime, but sort of feel-good comedy thingy with, back in the 80s. Um, but it was yes. Big, I can't remember yes, what yes, it was yes, called. Yes, and yes, and yes. Anne Archer, of course, was in Dangerous Liaisons. Oh, with Michael Doug- Douglas! Thank you. Yes, yeah, playing Michael Douglas's wife, and she did a lot of big parts back in those days. Mm. So, so we had we. I mean, but I mean, working with Anthony Quinn and Charlton Heston, even if they were like going towards eighty, probably, mm. and mm. that was my first job. Uh, yeah, yeah. I also had a good first job. Yeah, <laughs> and you think that it's going to go on like that, and it's not, and it's not. <laughs> so you peak on your first job, and then it all goes down, and well, hopefully not. <laughs> but it's not going to keep. <laughs> going to keep rising from the first point it's, onwards. It's no, just, that's not how definitely it, not. anything goes. No. Uh, you also been a second unit director for yes. a couple of TV shows? Well, one TV show, um, Rebecca Martinson, which was... If there were two TV movies, but then they re-edited it and, and broadcast them as, as uh, 45 minutes episodes, which is quite strange because we shot them as 90-minute films. and then they, I thought it were three films and then... They made off. four films. I second unit directed uh, two of them. Okay. The, actually, I AD'd, I first AD'd two of the films mm. and we didn't have, have a second unit for, for those two. And then I couldn't first AD the other two for for availability reasons oh, right. and but they had a couple of days well more than a couple of days i think it was like 12 days maybe of second unit shoots and they needed right. a second unit director and they brought me in for that so mm. that was that was great fun yeah yeah so what does a second unit director do what what does that entail well a second unit is is a unit that does shots and scenes that the the main unit doesn't have time to do like establishing shots and could stuff be establishing like that. shots on um, on bigger productions it's quite common to have an action unit mm. like you have an, a, a director specialized in in action scenes yeah. so you have an action unit doing do all like the action cars scenes. flipping over and uh, cars flipping over fights uh, you know chases on horseback mm, mm. Uh, all those kind of things yeah. action scenes sometimes you have a helicopter unit on other occasions, you have you might have a submarine unit. And <laughs> wow! Who knows? Being you know, the underwater unit, unit on the film is, is very underwater units, and and so second unit can be a lot of different things. It sometimes mm. the second unit is bigger than the main unit. Oh, but yeah, like if you if you have a proper action unit, it's yeah, quite yeah, normal yeah. that the second unit is is bigger than the main unit because the main unit might be shooting a dialogue scene between two actors in an interior. Right? Yeah. Whereas the action unit is doing a car chase scenes with exploding cars and mm. and smoke and and fire and and, yeah. and and stunts and all and a lot of set decoration things, yeah. and uh, props and st- oh yeah, of course so, so, uh, I thought of that of so course. that can be it depends on the job mm. on this occasion that I did uh, the Rebecca Martinson TV show it was mainly uh, all the car shots 
mm-hmm. and and uh, a lot of establishers and and a couple of uh, scary scary acting scenes as well actually. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've seen a behind-the-scenes shot from uh, from that job oh. that uh, Benjamin showed me. Ah. Uh, that was just so lovely. I, I, from right, uh, what I understand is like uh, you guys missed that you needed a shot from inside a window, uh, so you remembered you had to do that. So you just held a window up, uh, a loose window, and then a, a curtain and uh, in the middle of the road somewhere just yeah. to get. <laughs> And, yeah, and the yeah, curtain was like one. toilet paper or something. I can't remember that, but it might have been. Yeah, it might I think have been. you were in the, the picture, so I, that. that's why yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, about. yeah. No, why well, you do those kind of things? You know, <laughs> it was a POV. It was a point of view. Yeah, from it was supposed to be from inside a house, looking out over a gravel road, if I'm not wrong, mm, and a car approaching, yeah. something like that. But we couldn't do it from the proper house mm. where we shot the interior scenes, so we had to do that particular shot somewhere else we had to bring the window frame and mm-hmm. and fake curtains mm. and and whatever it was and set up that shot in a different place in a different location yeah. uh, and that's quite common uh, yeah well what's important is what's in the frame yeah, yeah. absolutely so, so in fact that 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 window frame when we should when we do that shot that pov which is supposedly inside from inside a house yeah, yeah. looking out we're, yeah. we're in the middle of the woods and mm. it's just the window frame yeah, yeah that's what uh, i saw so the, the, only, as usual. the only trouble I'm thinking about uh, with that is that the color temperature would look outdoorsy on the the hand or whatever the and uh, the window frame from the inside. I guess you got to light light it with some color gel to make it look more yellowish from that side or something like that. Possibly, I'm sure we blocked it out. We probably bro- blocked uh, that, blocked out the light with uh, molten. Oh right, black so cloth, just shadowy. Yeah. Mm. And but I can't remember. No. It's three years ago. Blind me if I remember three years ago. <laughs> oh, if you keep working as much as you do and you've mm. done it for 15 years, I guess a lot of stories just disappear or get mixed up. Yeah. You don't even do. remember which they production do. things were no, on. No. Uh, you, you told me the other day you had worked on like 250 commercials or something like that. I would say something like that. 200, 250 maybe. Yeah, yeah. and they, they must be, you know... It's all maybe. a blur. It's a blur, yeah. It's a blur. You remember the last five. Okay. And, and the rest are like, whoa. And what are you doing on uh, on commercials? Uh, first ADing? Or? First ADing, yeah. yeah. I've directed a couple of, of corporate films mm. myself, but uh, not yet directing commercials. Hopefully will. Mm. But uh, That's the only time we worked together is on a commercial set. Yep. Uh, for <laughs> for wallpaper paste. Yeah, you'll have to blame <laughs> me for that, for not not uh, casting you for the part in my short film. <laughs> mm, well. <laughs> I assume responsibility. We should have worked more. Yeah, yeah, we might, we might, we will. Um, that must, I think, that was four years ago. I think we did that commercial, yeah. and I guess that was when people actually got paid decently last time uh, for people in front of the camera. Because I, I, it seems like commercials don't pay for actors anymore. Uh, I, I guess there are like multiple reasons for that, but one I guess is that it's so easy to find people who are willing to sell their face just to be shown on a screen. And like, I can do it. And then some of us other actors are saying, but we we need jobs, but we also need to get paid. Come on. <laughs> and, like, well, we have this guy who can do it for a tenth of what you want to do it for. So, so that's a trick. Well, it, you it, know, it, we keep talking about that in the business, that uh, commercial budgets have completely, like, been, yeah. been nullified it's right. like back but, in but is it across the board is it, it is, even for your, you guys absolutely it's 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 uh, totally across 
it, it affects every department. It affects everyone. Um, I'm not a producer, so I'm, I mean, I don't have all the figures, but I know for a fact we did a lot more big commercials 15 years ago than mm. we do today. Oh, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, we had huge budgets and you could actually afford to do really big setups mm, with, cool stuff. with a lot of expensive technical equipment, with a lot of people in front of camera. Mm. And nowadays what what's happened is that the budgets have gone, gone down not 5%, 10%, but we're, I mean, we're talking 90%. Yeah, yeah. Um, not on the big ones. I mean, Coca-Cola and McDonald's and all those, they probably still pay the big money, I'm guessing here. Yeah, yeah. Please forgive me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but, Don't but, count on it. I'm but uh, on a lot of commercial shoots these days, the budgets are so low, you mm. really have to squeeze every little cost. And and to uh, to even make the slightest profits and and um, the clearest way of of seeing how that affects us is when we replace actors with extras, yeah, okay. which is what yeah. we do. Yeah. We replace actors with extras, or uh, advanced extras, as or advanced extras. Say. Yeah. So instead of paying, which doesn't exist, <laughs> five thousand euros, you pay a hundred euros, mm. which is a huge difference. It is, yes. Um, so, um, but it, it's, it's the same for us behind the camera. We, again, we slim down the crews, mm. we work with more skeleton crews, um, and, and, and basically we do everything a little bit worse. Yeah, of course. Um, mm. That it is a loss of quality, sadly. I'm just trying to analyze. I'm, I'm thinking that it, the internet must have something to do with it since, uh, w- maybe we don't really sell things by commercials on tv or even the cinema anymore we do it in new ways and it's uh, internet uh, banners and uh, viral marketing and stuff like that and uh, word of mouth and sites where users review things and um, you know i think you sell things more from uh, an amazon review than you do from a tv commercial you probably, probably do today. yeah so that might be why uh, Companies, uh, corporations are rethinking where they want to put their money mm. when it comes to advertising. Mm. For sure, that I don't know. I wouldn't know, but for, it does sound perfectly reasonable. I think another thing that is uh, that's happened over the last 20 years uh, through the implementation of all, all the digital media is the easy access to, to workable equipment. I mean, you yeah. can basically buy a fairly cheap camera and say, hey, I'm going to do commercials or music mm. videos and mm. go out and do it. And a lot of people do that and they start com- competing with the established production companies, even if they're not an established production company. And that way they lower the yes. costs. They, 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 we can they light it, it themselves. Mm. They edit it themselves. You, you even do the sound. You can be a one-man army yeah. and, and, and promote yourself as, as a commercial producer or director. Mm. And you would do it a lot cheaper than... than than what a big production company would mm. would uh, budget, and mm. and I think that kind of competition, which is very sane, I'm not saying it's bad, but it mm, yeah. it probably does affect the overall budgets in the whole industry. I would guess. Yeah, <laughs> you were telling me about your uh, production on When Tears Have Fallen. Uh, mm. The short film was a troubled one, uh, oh, and you, yeah. of course, since you worked so much, you you know, stranger to troubled nope. productions. You worked on the first try to do a Terry Gilliam Don Quixote movie. Yes, I did. That 
<laughs> turned out to be a documentary called Lost in La Mancha instead of an actual feature. Because it never happened. It was burdened by catastrophe. Uh, how was that experience? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, still amazing, amazing and very sad. Yeah. Uh, because uh, up, up until today, I would still say that that is the best script I have ever held in my hands. Wow, and yeah. that was in the year 2000. Mm. Um, it was an amazing script. It was going to be an amazing film. Mm by an absolutely amazing director. Yeah. And I got the job as a third assistant director on that one. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, so, uh, Which means you were doing what, really? Uh, basically, you're the first AD's right hand on set. Um, you run actors uh, from, from, from the green the trailer room set. And to the set yeah. you, you make sure the actors have everything they need. You help setting up the background um, mm. you know it's it's a uh, so you had to like, deal with uh, yeah. Jean Rochefort and Johnny Depp and Vanessa Paradis maybe uh, yeah yeah I even got to hold their baby oh once in the hotel for for like five seconds oh probably she, probably she, no one remembers that but me but yeah. and she's a film star now as well yeah she I mean she was big, yoga she, she was big in then she <laughs> Kevin was, Smith film yeah. she was big in then so mm, mm. Now that was I mean, getting that job as as a new new uh, wannabe film worker that was uh, amazing. Yeah, I'd only course. been in the business for a year, and, yeah, yeah. And, and I got that job. And you had just done that big the TV show you were telling me about. That was the year before. Yes, year so before. I'd, yeah. I'd done the TV show, then yeah. I did a year at film school, and I I had finished a Spanish uh, feature film, and I'd finished uh, a week of completing. Completing shots on Moulin Rouge in Madrid. That's another story for you. Um, Holy then, and, fuck. Yeah. And then I went <laughs> if we, on If to, we look up to the wall, I have a piece of yeah, Moulin Rouge uh, poster. So yeah. I'm a fan, let's yeah, say. Yeah, no, that was another fabulous experience. Um, yeah, of course. And, and then I went on to Terry Gilliam. And I guess I got those jobs for being in Spain, speaking perfect Spanish, mm-hmm. And also dominating the English language, it was easy to, for me to get the service yeah, yeah. productions, and these were service productions, sure, sure, sure. Uh, in a way. So, uh, yeah, but that Terry Gilliam shoot was was it was an amazing experience and extremely sad. It wasn't tough for me, of course not. Uh, for me, the only tough thing was that we didn't get to finish the film. Yeah, but for Terry and for the producers and 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 all the HODs, it it was a bloody disaster. Yeah. Were you on set the day when stuff just rained away? Yeah, no, we were all there yeah. back in those days. Yeah, it was mayhem. The funny thing is it went so bloody quick. Yeah. It was like half an hour from being absolutely a dried out riverbank mm. till seeing the rain, well, hearing the thunder in the mountains. Mm. And that is like miles away. We're talking 15 miles away, probably. I don't know how far away, it, but it's really far away. Yeah, yeah. And half an hour later... The, the the dried out riverbank is just flooding. It was a river. It was a river, yeah. <laughs> it was a river. Uh, a river with uh, quite a current. Yeah. And there's a th- of course there are stories that, that aren't told in the documentary, but yeah, they, the camera was in the riverbank when the water arrived and it was quite a struggle to get the camera back up. Uh, yeah, it was the, course, uh, yeah. the second uh, the second AC the second assistant camera and mm-hmm. and I think one I think one of the boomers and one of the grip guys there were like three people actually 
trying to struggling to carry the camera out of the out of the water. Mm, mm, mm. They did manage to save the camera though. So. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. But uh, the big the big issue on that one in the end was uh, Jean Rochefort's uh, his illness, his uh, health problems. He got yeah. problems with uh, I don't know what you call that the spine, the vertebrae. He, he that, couldn't ride, it, it, ride yeah. a horse. No, he couldn't way. definitely not ride a horse, yeah. and he couldn't be in armor. No. With okay. if you're going to play Don Quixote, you have to sit in a horse in armor, in armor with a shield yeah. and a lance all the time, and yeah. he couldn't do that. So and that was that was the nail in the coffin. The 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 storm with the flooded dried out riverbank and and also the military uh, aircrafts that interrupted the shoots and uh, mm. the mm. first three shoot days during the first week that was the first week of shoot mm. and then we regrouped after the first week of shoot we did a uh, sixth shoot day in in a different place a beautiful uh, waterfall in a beautiful park oh, yeah. shooting with the, Johnny Depp and, and a white horse documentary yeah and and um that was the last shoot day. And when we had finished those six shoot days, schedule-wise, we had already lost three shoot days because of the uh, the rain, because of the uh, the aircrafts, the military exercise and all that. Mm-hmm. But And then they stopped the shoot and we set a new start date mm. to restart the shoot three weeks ahead or something like that. Mm. And we went back to prep and we started prepping and we prepped for for, for three weeks. Expensive, and they kept moving the start. Push, they kept pushing the start date more and more. No, nobody really knew why, but they were always saying, "No, we're gonna we're gonna restart the shoot okay, on this nobody day." Nobody told anybody about the health no, problems. Nobody and, knew. No, oh, yeah, no, that okay. was probably kept quite secret right, for a right. while, and then and then uh, after I don't know, I think after three and a half weeks of prep, they gathered the crew and said, "Guys, this is happening." Uh, John Rochefort has has. Uh, this particular health problem and he won't be able to shoot and we don't have replacement so and 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 mm. and and still we all of us we all wanted to keep shooting but then the insurance the completion bond stepped yeah. in and said sorry guys we're not going to cover the costs anymore right so that's the final that straw. is that's the final yeah. straw when the completion bond enters and says we're not going to cover the losses anymore we're not going to cover these costs mm. we are stopping the shoot mm. Uh, which is what they did. They stopped the shoot, which also gave them, sadly, the rights to the script. So. Uh, that too, yeah. Which is another story. That's a long story. Everybody knows it. <laughs> I remember a scene in uh, in the documentary where uh, Terry was investigating uh, or scouting, basically, a uh, a studio. But it wasn't a studio. It was like just a big hangar with the, it was a warehouse. In, in, enormous uh, reverb time yeah. of like two and a half seconds or something. You know? No, that, that's a story behind that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh the production was looking for a soundstage to shoot uh, a scene where where um, uh, Sancho Panza, Johnny Johnny Depp's character, it's mm. not exactly Sancho Panza because he comes from the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. But still, um, Toby. Well, Toby, Toby, correct, where he fights with some big marionette puppets, yep, yep. Uh, mm. full-size mm. um, marionette puppets, and we needed a soundstage for that. And the truth which is not in the documentary i might i hope i'm not going to get hanged for this but um, the truth is that the um, production got greenlit so late mm. that when they started prepping in spain there was not a single soundstage available 
anywhere near the production center. Mm. There just wasn't a soundstage. Oh. They were all booked for for the whole shoot and, and some time after that. Mm. So what production had to do was find, okay, where can we set up a soundstage? And they ended up finding this warehouse, which it is a, it's a warehouse. It's yeah, not a soundstage. Yeah. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> so it's almost so, But the reason wasn't really that there, there aren't any soundstages. There are soundstages in Spain. Yeah, of course. There, are, there are good ones mm. and, and quite a few. But they were all booked. Uh, and of course, that is mostly an issue of sound. You can hear that in the name, soundstage. And the same thing with, uh, I guess, the military aircraft. Uh, I, I mean, I guess a lot of times after a while, you just have to let that go on some shoots and you realize we have to do all this in ADR yeah. with the dialogue yeah. and stuff like that. Unexpected things happen on, on every shoot. I actually, I actually have a funny story about my about my uh, final project on film school back in Spain, mm -hmm. about how things can go wrong, with, yeah, with, go <laughs> which are absolutely impossible to predict. Um, we were doing our final uh, project, third year of film school, uh, shooting on 35 mil, a six-day six shoot, very ambitious short. Yeah. Um, and we had a, a couple of scenes that were going to be shot, interior car, during night, Uh, using a low loader uh, mm. on uh, on a highway. Mm. A low loader is when you put a car on. A, yes, you a put a car on a platform, yeah, platform, and the platform is pulled by by a small truck. Mm. And on that platform, you can light. You set up the cameras outside of the car, and you have the actors inside. Yeah, and all they that. just so pretend to be it's, driving. It's a tracking vehicle. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway um, so we we and you're not allowed to drive that vehicle on a functioning highway. Hmm. I don't know anywhere in Europe where you would be allowed to do that. No, 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 no. But our amazing location manager um, found uh, found an, a recently finished part of a highway that hasn't, hadn't been opened yet. Hmm. Uh, so we got a completely new piece of highway that was for our use only hmm. for a certain night shoot. We have all the papers in order and we start the shoot. Uh, we spend, I think, three or four nights before that shooting. It's all night. Uh, and on the night before we are going to the highway, 24 hours before, our location manager approaches us and says, guys, you know what? We can't shoot at the highway tomorrow night. It's like, why not? What's happened? Well, because of some political issues with the royal family. Um, they want to divert the attention from the media. So the prince has decided that two days from now, they're going to have an opening ceremony of that highway uh, yeah. that we are supposed to shoot on. So okay. for national security reasons, they've pulled our permit to shoot on the highway. Oh. So the Spanish prince ruined our final project <laughs> on film school. <laughs> What were they thinking you could do to threaten him? You know, like plant mines or something? I mean, I mean it's two days later. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe, Maybe they uh, took us for terrorists. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, and there we were, poor film school students saying, okay, what do we do now? We what did you do? Well, we canceled that sh night of shooting and, and uh, eventually we found a sort of access to a highway, which was about a kilometer long. Mm. Uh, 
and we postponed the shoot dates. It cost a bit more money, but we ended up doing the scenes not on a highway, but just by a highway mm-hmm. on 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 an access to to a highway, which yeah. luckily was long enough to do the scene. But it's not as good, but it works. Mm. It works. So, did you have a several cars? So you could have cars following and meeting, so you get those uh, the lights and yeah. The, yeah, yeah. You have to have you to have think about all that stuff. Yeah, and everybody have to has to communicate and. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was. I mean, for a film school, that's a big shoot. It, it was is a really big shoot yeah. and a big permit to get a four four lane highway mm-hmm. <laughs> closed off. Yeah, just for us and, and then, all that equipment. I I mean, I haven't been around any. F- student film that filmed on 35 millimeter and had a uh, low rider as you said and yeah. uh, anything like that that was a luxury uh, <laughs> back in the days when i was a film student that's mm. you could do those things well, and back in those days sure there wasn't there, there weren't any reds or uh, nope. uh, ari alexis or anything like that so maybe you would have used that because of money and yeah you actually just started talking about digital mm. filming and mm. and that i can't remember when when George Lucas did his Star Wars films. Uh, Attack of the Clones was the first yeah, uh, digital was, one, and yeah. that was let's see, Phantom Menace came out in '99, and I think Attack of the Clones was like 2001, two. What was it? Yeah. So it would be around about that uh, time. So, and our film school had not yet reacted to that, so we had the luxury of shooting on 35, mm. which was amazing. Yeah, I wish we could still do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I said it before. I'm. I feel lucky to have actually been filmed <laughs> by 35 millimeter before it went away completely. So mm. I, yep, check, done that. Mm. Just to know that you're on celluloid somewhere, it's actually nice. <laughs> you, oh yeah, you worked on Arn. That's one of the biggest you know, production uh, productions we've done uh, in the Nordic countries, like ever, isn't it? I think it's still the most expensive expensive swedish production uh. if i might be wrong but i think it is and you were second ad in morocco i was second ad on the uh, morocco shoot which is uh, all the scenes that take place in the holy land uh-huh. um, uh, we shot that in morocco and uh, yeah i was second ad under working under a british first ad called guy travers mm-hmm. who was already then i think it was 73 years old a wonderful gentleman mm-hmm. Uh, exemplary professional mm. and and just a fantastic first AD to learn from. One of your mentors. One almost. of my mentors. We only did that shoot because uh-huh. I guess because of his age, he didn't keep first ADing very long after that. Oh. Um, like we said, it takes a lot but, out of but you. He, yeah, it uh, does take a lot out of you. But he was brilliant. Senior citizen yeah. age already. <laughs> Mm. It was brilliant, but that was a lot of fun. That, that uh, yeah, I guess so. Morocco, Spain, and then you've been to the north of Sweden with Rebecca Martinson. Martinson yeah. uh, so you do extremes when it comes to weather and. <laughs> I do. All right. I've been in the north of Norway shooting uh, in the ninth of June, having a snowfall. Uh huh. Yeah. And then, as you said, I've been to Morocco shooting desert scenes. So yeah. Mm. Life of a film, life of a film worker. Right. It, it brings you to a lot of new places that you wouldn't even dream of going. It's, what is the most amazing? I mean, we already mentioned the the riverbed being uh, flooded in uh, the man who killed Don Quixote. Uh, but what is the most 
extreme condition when it comes to that kind of thing, you know, uh, weather and uh, force majeure, basically. Uh, that that it is, of course, that that would be uh, one, that yeah. is the most extreme one. I've been slightly lucky with weather always. Mm. I haven't really had any big, big, um, any huge wood, yeah. weather disasters. <laughs> of course, you've had to change a schedule because you needed a sunny day and it was raining and you had to move into interiors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I've been kind of lucky with that. And then, of mm. course, in Sweden, we don't use weather sets. We don't, there's never money to have a weather cover. No, so so no, basically, no. when we go to exteriors in Sweden, we, we shoot whatever the weather is. All oh, right. Um, the script just have to this, change. Yeah, this, basically, yeah. Hmm. And, and uh, yeah. So there's never really an option. But Morocco was, we shot in Morocco in, in February, so it wasn't extremely warm. Hmm. It was quite fine. Um, I can't really, no, I can't remember any other absolutely disastrous weather conditions. Oh. In spite of my 19 years in the business. <laughs> yeah. I just hope, uh, knock on wood, that nothing like that would happen when uh, you're a director on something. I certainly be... hope so. Oh, yeah. You you worked as uh, a first AD on the second unit on the bridge. That's uh, another fun production. Uh, it seems to have Which, been. I, mean, I, know, I was yeah, there for one day, cool. so... <laughs> no, that's that's one of those productions that really most things went, went absolutely the way it should go. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So, yeah. Most things, not... In, Everything never goes the way you want it to, but yeah. but a very nice and pleasant production. Southern Sweden represent. <laughs> Southern Sweden. So the moral of the story is: if you want to have a nice and pleasant uh, production mm. with a bloody good creative result, come to Southern Sweden. Exactly. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> Listen to that, all productions mm-hmm. out there. Come here and spend your money. <laughs> Do with the our- bridge. Go to Malmo to shoot. Yeah. We'll ensure you'll have a bloody good production and a bloody good show. Mm. And then we have the Easter, of course, uh, town in the other end of uh, Scania, uh, w- which profiles itself as a film town because they have a studio and they really want you to uh, come there and shoot in their countryside. And they're, they're very helpful, uh, from what I understand, to uh, to film crews. That's... Uh, I think even like the tourist board or something like that have made an effort to be welcoming of uh, filming, because uh, and of course they they've done a lot of television stuff, uh, Wallander, both Swedish and uh, international version or British yep. version. Um, so uh, let's hope it's going to be a lot more of that. Yeah, we need we do need to start bringing more productions to to the region because after the bridge and after Wallander mm. uh, wrapping. The, their final seasons. Mm. Um, apparently, there is uh, there's a lot of people, uh, extremely competent, good film workers that mm. that that uh, are just waiting for jobs. So yeah. come here and shoot. We have amazing locations. Mm. We have mm. uh, good facilities. We have uh, we you know studios. Whatever you need. Yeah. We Skåne has really grown into something that can supply a full film shoot. Would you say that Malmö needs more facilities? Do we actually need a, a an actual soundstage, a big studio? In my opinion, yes. Yeah, my opinion too. <laughs> yeah, because what we have is mostly for TV and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we have national television, and it's and grown a bit old. Yeah, um, and sure. it's too small. Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, if you would allow me to dream, if I had the dream huge on. building company, company, I would build. I would build a uh, 2,000 square meter 
super professional soundstage uh, right by right by the bridge to Copenhagen. Oh, okay. Interesting location. That way we could compete with the Danish sound stages. We mm-hmm. could build a bigger mm-hmm. and a better sound stage. And since Sweden is general, yeah, mm. and so we could we could actually get the Danes over to mm. our side since Sweden generally is a bit cheaper than Denmark as well. Yeah, um, I think that that would be perfect to have a fully equipped, perfectly professional, big sound stage mm. uh, close to the bridge that could generate a production center mm. that and would give be tax cuts. international and tax cuts. Yes. That's the tax cuts, one. politicians. We mm. need tax cuts. <laughs> uh, in our political climate today, I don't think film uh, productions are really prioritized. Nope. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. No. Yeah, yeah. They bloody well should be. Yeah. <laughs> what have you got going on right now? What have I got going on? Well, actually, right now I'm developing a couple of projects on my own. Yeah. Um, that I'm hoping to pitch uh, a couple of them during the summer and the rest of them during the upcoming year. So I've just had I've spent half a year doing commercials, mm. um, and and I'm looking actually I'm looking towards doing shooting commercials um, to pay the rent and 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 developing my own projects, which. There are too many of them. <laughs> uh, there's always too many. Of them. There's always too many. Yeah. Can you tell me anything about any of them? Or I can. I can. I'm doing a. I'm actually right now. I've been working on it today. Uh, writing a, um, a sci-fi, lo-fi sci-fi story. Lo-fi. Confined space. Yeah. Very very cheap. Fully financed. You could probably shoot it for for five hundred thousand euros. Mm-hmm. That is paying everyone and and paying yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, confined space story about eight people uh, on a spacecraft traveling through space. I'm not going to oh. tell you more than that. No, but you already I'm not, me. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to tell you the plot because that would be, not, you know, that's revealing so- too much right now. But but it's 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 a very very psychological story. It's intriguing. Mm. My my sort of. Uh, Idols, or, or how would you call it? My, the people I would love to try and make films the Any way they do. Yeah, yeah, is is uh, I mean Chris Nolan and David mm. Fincher and, and Danny Boyle. Uh huh. Okay. So it's that kind of psychological drama mm. on a spaceship between eight people. Um, mind mind fuck and and mm-hmm. soul fuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lo-fi, sci-fi, mindfuck, soulfuck. There yeah. we go. <laughs> There's your tagline. Yeah. Okay. That it's so smart to do that. It's fun to begin with, but it's mm. also, I think, kind of smart. I, I was uh, talking to another uh, like a scriptwriter friend of mine uh, who's also a sci-fi fan, like myself, and we were we were talking about that. Like, uh, it doesn't matter if a film with that kind of theme comes out and it's not very good, and if we and you hear from reviews or uh, people talking about it that eh, it's not very good you're going to see it anyway because it's com- people confined in a spaceship or a space station i'm there because <laughs> it's the theme is just yeah. so if we're fans of that it's just so compelling you're always going to watch it yeah sci-fi is always going to find its audience yeah because that and horror of course sci-fi horror fantasy mm. um they have an audience yeah they, they, and the audience is extremely reliable mm. It won't fail you. It'll it'll watch the film. Mm. Something so of course, this film that. is going to be great, but 
Yeah, of course uh, it's going to be. <laughs> but in any case, it's going uh, yeah. to find an audience. Yeah. No, and it, it's not thought. It, we're not writing it for the big screen. We're writing it for something that could be Sci-Fi Channel, Netflix, mm. you know, streaming services, pay-per-view, pay pay Amazon, who knows. Mm. But... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a script myself, but that is also a uh, confined space, fantastical kind of thing. So uh, I know all about <laughs> what you're trying to do, uh, the vision. And it's the it's the the way to to do a cheap production. Mm. You know, if you why do we do cheap productions? Because there it is hard to find proper funding in 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 southern Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and we don't really do genre films uh, in Sweden historically. I think we're going to be loosening up a little bit more about not that. Not a lot. Sadly. It is uh, uh, the Swedish Film Institute is already stating that they are going to uh, support more genre films. Yeah, yeah. Than they have historically, and so. and create more international collaborations. I think they also specifically stated. Hell yeah, co-productions. Yeah. We're running this Please one. See. This one we're writing in in English. It's yeah, smart that too. To yeah, mm, mine Completely as well. <laughs> aiming for an international audience. Yeah, yeah. When you say lo-fi sci-fi, uh, the, the lo-fi part is that that it's very gritty, like an alien, or is it lo-fi like it doesn't need uh, need much in the terms of budget? Is it more like a moon? Duncan Jones's film. Uh, moon would be sort of lo-fi sci-fi. Yeah, I guess. Not, so, right. not, that lo-fi um to me lo-fi sci-fi is is that sure it's sci-fi because mm. it's on a spaceship in another galaxy mm. who knows but it's not it's not uh, extremely technological you won't see uh computer screens in mid-air no without an actual screen you, you like, might see like it on minority report IBM, you, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you'll see screws and bolts and nails and 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 mm. you know it's just it's set on a spaceship in, in somewhere else mm. but still kind of believable absolutely we're not believable. talking red wharf season one and two no <laughs> no so it's i would almost say it's down to earth mm. down to earth sci-fi yeah yeah i checked out your um uh, your short when tears have fallen and uh, i could almost see that kind of link also to terry gilliam there in in the kind of aesthetics of of props and stuff like uh the screens and uh, uh and stuff like they they used like also f feels kind of lo-fi sci-fi it is lo-fi sci-fi yeah. yeah and uh also quirky in a way if that's mm. a word i can use uh, absolutely please it. do yeah. so I, I i don't know was that any uh deliberate uh, absolutely deliberate all right. Yeah, I would have wanted to enrich it more with mm. that universe, you know, stuff from a universe that is a bit Terry Gilliam esque, mm. or or maybe Jean Pierre Jeunet. Oh yeah, yeah, the exactly. French director. Exactly. That exactly. that yeah. the short film is, uh, if I'm going to talk inspirational directors for the short film, mm. it would be Terry Gilliam, Jean Pierre Jeunet. Um, I can hardly think of anyone better. The to ones mention. you call yeah. visionary directors. Yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. And 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 had we had more budget and more time it's a zero budget project i mean had we had budget and time yeah. we would have enriched uh the film with a lot more of that those you know those little yeah. colored details and yeah, yeah. and little crazy uh, weird props weird made from something else corny too. stuff yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but but in a way it works quite well that's that's not too much of it it, mm. it becomes more tasteful in a way the way it is 
right now. So we're quite happy about that. Yeah. So it doesn't step over that line of no. believability too much. No, it's still believable in, yeah. in its own universe. But it is a lo-fi sci-fi. It's set, what we say is it's set in a near future. Mm, yeah. Yep. And what's a near future? It, it might, could be, not, might not be our near future. Might, might not be, be a, our near future. No. And I think that's a Terry Gilliam way of thinking as well, that it doesn't have to be this world because uh, it would never look like this in this world. Mm. And uh, that's when you, what you see in Blade Runner as well. It's uh, it's in it's next year. It, it takes place next year, basically. And uh, But it's still very futuristic, but also retro. Yeah. And I, I love that uh, mix. And that's using the imagination in an interesting way. Yeah. And... Um, so if one is interested in you and what you're doing, uh, mm-hmm. how do we go about finding your stuff and you? Well, I, I, my stuff is on Vimeo. Mm. Uh, my company is called Spinning Wheel Films. And so if you look for Spinning Wheel Films on, on, on Vimeo, you'll find the things I feel like putting out there. Right. Which is, uh, but of course, you won't find the second unit stuff I direct right. because that's, that's out you know hmm. that's proper broadcast but hmm. uh, my own stuff will be on vimeo and and um yeah that's probably the best way of getting to know me yeah because you're not a big uh, social media guy i mean i'm on facebook but i no yeah. i don't post too many where the short film when tears have fallen does have a facebook page and a twitter uh-huh. but it's been a while since we actually updated that because it was on this festival circuit in 2015 yeah so it's a, a while ago so it's been a couple of years so yeah only natural, yeah. <laughs> natural but every now and then pe- then people pop up who've who've just recently seen it mm-hmm. and and it does get very good reviews still mm. from people who are watching it saying oh why didn't i see this before it's absolutely lovely and yeah and there you have so, your guaranteed audience for the the next one yep absolutely mm. Mm. and a couple of festivals that i will always be able to bring my my next production of course so. yeah, yeah, yeah then you have so the seal cool. of approval yeah, I do. Yeah, luckily, <laughs> lucky me. Now yeah. I just need the script and and and, and shoot it. <laughs> all right, thanks yeah. for coming Thank and sharing all your stuff. Are we done? I think we're done. Oh, <laughs> I thought we just started. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. All right. Good. Bye. Thank you, Peter. Okay, that was interesting. If you're into film history and film work and all that jazz, check out next episode in two weeks' time when my guest will be none of the above. And until then, don't fuck up if you're working on a film set. (laughs) Bye.